Hello and welcome to Right Now. I'm Stephen Kent. Right Now is the very first show from Rightly, a new digital platform from Al Jazeera. Our goal here is to provide a platform for dialogue on the future of the American political right. I happen to be working on this very same kind of project when Al Jazeera reached out, and I'm thrilled we found one another to do this. Political discourse in America has become really bitter and disorienting for all of us, not just for the millions of Americans whose identities are tied, rightly or wrongly, to being opposed to the modern Democratic Party. American conservatism has long been defined what's called Fusionism. It's the timid marriage between traditionalist conservative and libertarian thought united by a shared commitment to liberalism or openness or accommodation. That marriage of convenience goes back decades and then it peaked in the Cold War. Now, in case you haven't noticed, it has since gotten pretty ugly. The marriage is undergoing counseling. The feeling on the right is that the political left has radicalized, abandoning the one thing all political factions in the United States used to have in common, which was that liberalism, or modus vivendi. It essentially means coexistence. Now look, the left has radicalized. I think that's true. But what do we do with that? Donald Trump seized on the work of radio legend Rush Limbaugh in essentially saying to be conservative means to fight like hell, or they win whereas William F. Buckley once likened it to standing athwart history yelling stop. This new version of that is shouting stop while also hitting back with star-spangled brass knuckles all the time. Now, Trump also tapped into a desire to challenge conservative economics and orthodoxy, like keeping the government out of the hair of private companies or the virtues of free trade. Now, for Trump, trade was about his zero-sum view of the world and a narrow definition of what it means to win. If France was putting tariffs on our goods and we weren't adding tariffs to their imported wine, then we were suckers. That's not about theory. That's about temperament. And that is the crossroad American conservatives find themselves at right now. A choice between facts and feelings, empiricism or rationalism, owning the libs or owning our actions. Now, I am not saying that there is no fight to be had. Of course there is. But it seems to me that the fight has been monetized for a select group of people. And so naturally, the fight can never end and it can only ever escalate. My formative years were when Barack Obama came on the scene. And I remember being really disturbed by the cult of personality, the creepy idolatry, that campaign artwork from his 2008 run, And to me, the Republican Party, even the Tea Party movement, it was a check on that. The GOP was the party of limits. Now, maybe it's just that I learned with age what politics is really about and that we're always barely on the brink of totalitarian cults of personality, if not for this pesky document called the Constitution. Or maybe there is something new that is wrong and rotten, making us sick and our politics sicker. I want to try to understand better what it could be what to call it, and figure out where we go from here. I really hope you will come along with us. Now, right now is a little bit of a pun. It's about where the American right stands at this moment and where it could go. Every week, we're going to have conversations that try to piece together the paths that we could take and what needs to be done right now to give America the best shot at a prosperous future and the ideal of a genuinely pluralistic open society. We've had a Republican Party built for stonewalling, then one built for the fight, But what about just building? I won't be doing it alone. Very excited about that. Every week I'm going to be joined by an awesome co-host to do it with me. So let's get started right now. First, Shoshana Weissman. Shoshana is a fellow at the R Street Institute here in Washington, D.C. Show, thanks for being here. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. We finally made it and you brought the Snapchat hot dog all as well. I don't leave home without him, ever. I I do believe that. And our guest today is Albert Eisenberg. He's principal of Blue State Red, a political writer and co-founder of Broad and Liberty. Albert, thanks for coming down to D.C. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Thought I heard some feedback in my mic, but it was just Joe Biden snoring. Sleepy Joe is now the ruler of the swamp, so that uh, that definitely checks out. Now, before we get into it, I want to start with something we're going to be doing regularly on the show, which is taking a peek at the discourse. I've been thinking about the Tea Party a lot this week. It got its start about 12 years ago this week, and for the anniversary, Matt Lewis wrote it uh, wrote about it in the Daily Beast, and he posited that the Tea Party movement morphed or metastasized into what we understand as the MAGA movement. Tom Nichols, author and contributor to The Atlantic, shared a link to the article and said of the Tea Party, 
I know its founders say it began as a real movement. Never bought that. I'm so sick of my dad being high on his horse. So of course he's doing that here. Like what? <laughs> How many dads do you have between him and Jonah Goldberg? It just, um, it's too many to count. Uh, many, like eight. <laughs> well, I don't think Glenn Greenwald is one of them. I don't no. know if he has any children. He's the Intercept co-founder. And recently, Glenn tweeted that a major driver of its early protests was the Ron Paul adjacent anger over the bailout, referring to mortgage bailouts during the 2008 financial crisis. And he noted that the anger was shared by Occupy Wall Street. I think that absolutely checks out. We're still seeing that brew today. And then lastly, you have the Bulwark's Charlie Sykes. And he asks, was it a genuine grassroots movement, a fringe movement composed of wingnuts or scam packs? Over time, it was all of those things. The Tea Party was a chimerical construct that changed its focus and agenda depending on its leadership and location. Chimerical? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good way to describe it, a, a hideous animal brought together for, uh, of all different sorts. And, you know, look, when the, the Tea Party comes to mind, it's a little bit of the origin story. Like, this is where I really began getting involved in politics. I was always interested, but I was just entering college at the time. And when this movement started up, you know, I thought something very different about it. And for everybody who's listening on the podcast, I'm holding up here the Gadsden flag. Uh, it's a little little memento I hold up at the, at the house. And I, I hold on to it because it, it means something to me. Like, it's, it's where this all began for me. Don't tread on me. But I think today I am more of a don't tread on anyone kind of person. And I feel like the Tea Party, it obviously lost its way. We have not seen the fruits of that born in D.C. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Um, also, I will say, you know, when I was younger, I never got into the Gadsden flag itself. Although these days I love memes of it. And my favorite is uh, the King of the Hill one where Bobby is on it. And it says, um, that's my purse. I don't know you. So the memes, <laughs> I always live for memes. But yeah, I like that. I like that. Uh, don't tread on anyone. That's definitely more where I've come from these days. Um, though I'm not sure it's where that movement evolved to necessarily. Yeah. Albert, where are you at on this? The Tea Party schism was a populist schism and the first uh, one that we saw that led directly to, to things like Brexit. And it's a global phenomenon. The left-wing media clutched its pearls endlessly. And I think it, uh, while it might not have been quote-unquote ideologically consistent as far as on spending, the common thread is that people did not want government controlling their lives. It did not want corporate tech, corporate media telling them how to live, what to think. But I don't know if I buy that anymore. I mean, like the same people who I came up with in the Tea Party movement at that time, um, you know, a lot of them ended up being very, very happy with the MAGA movement and going along with Donald Trump, which was a big government movement in its own right. It was the fight back or we are going to lose everything movement. And I thought at the time that the Tea Party was, again, like that movement of limits saying, like, I just want to be on my own island, not have Donald Trump make an island for all of us to live on. Yeah, and it sounds kind of like, I mean, thinking about it now, it's, you know, the Bush years were kind of quiet. We always saw conservatism as like a quiet thing, you know, very dignified. And then when Obama came and was loud and changed things a lot, and I think for the better in certain ways, uh, for the worse in others, but he made um, that celebrity come back to politics a little bit more um, and that um, that personality come back more. So I think some of that evolved over the years. And Trump obviously had that, too. That's why a lot of people liked him, because he's so gallant, you know? Quiet, quiet conservatism, the compassionate conservatism, but with the sound of the bombs falling overseas. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that. The, the quietude, I think, was a bit of a facade of the McCain, Rubio, Gang of Eight era. And I think the uh, populist schism that we saw with the Tea Party shocked with the GOP establishment first yeah. and then shocked the country. Yeah. And I think it just at the end of the day, it's it's not knowing who your voters really are. Yeah. Um, we've we've both kind of all come up in in sort of the conservative and libertarian nonprofit world. And we sort of have this idea of who it was that we were speaking to. You know, I always remember doing outreach to the grassroots during the 2014 midterms and trying to push ideas like criminal justice reform, uh, licensing reform, right? Something you're big on, Shoshana, and, uh, and immigration reform. 
But the only thing that people would ever leave in the comments was on criminal justice reform, uh, you do you do the time, do the crime, uh, all that kind of stuff. And then also just like really anti-immigration vitriol, particularly about like cheating the system and, and raiding um, uh, the social safety net. Like they never were on board, but we just kind of continued to plow forward hoping that maybe one day they would be. Yeah, and I think that's true of a lot of organizations. And and Albert, I'd be curious what you think here too, because I think a lot of organizations have a disconnect between leadership and between like their base, whether it's a campaign, whether it's um, any other organization that just has like a lot of people in it. Um, you know, pretty much everywhere I've worked, there's always some level of disconnect there. But um, but I think it's just exacerbated a lot over the past few years. And maybe it's the rise of social media and, and other things that allowed people's voices to be heard that we're understanding that and we're seeing like, oh, we were in to two totally different places. Yeah. I think we have witnessed, like you said, a completely fragmented uh, media system and the rise of some loud voices where the tone is more important than the ideology necessarily that's being um, fronted. I, I will say the American right either can figure out where its people are and serve them or die. Yeah, but uh, you know, our that, that whole thing about dying, Albert, are. like, so there was this theory back in the day that the millennials were going to be conservative and that they could be brought over. Um, I, I did work on, on these issues and there was this idea that they had certain conservative sensibilities as a generation, the one that I'm a part of, that you're a part of. Um, and it was, it was mostly couched in like social media stuff. It was couched in the idea that their, the social safety net was not going to last for them to tap into, that they would maybe want social security reform because everybody else was getting it, and that they liked apps like Uber and didn't want them to be regulated or forced out of the business by the unions because that's how we live. But that never happened. Millennials didn't go to the right. They, they went to the left and we've never gotten them back. We have a generation of people who think that they're socialists but have the newest iPhone. And that is a failure of the American right and of the education system to explain exactly what capitalism is, what the free market is. Um, and in some ways, it's an indication of the indoctrination that the American left has been so successful in infiltrating the public education system, the higher education system, every cultural venue, so that people can hold two thoughts at once, both that they are socialists and that every time they look for a ride, they're going to look at their Uber app and their Lyft app and go with the cheaper option. Right, but, but Albert, like, I, I think that some of that is true. But at the same time, do you think that millennials and Gen Z, who I, I really want to try to unpack a little bit about the difference between this generation, do you think that they misunderstand capitalism or do you think that they've just never lived in a stable America? Like, I, I grew up in the 90s. We, we grew up during a good time to be an American, still enjoying the fruits of the post-war period. People have not had that. If you were a young person in the 2000s, you grew up in endless war, uh, a war that has been going on now for over 20 years and just constant financial meltdown after financial meltdown. You can't buy a house, you can't get a job, and so you're making your living with various sharing economy jobs, and you're like, is this capitalism? Yeah, maybe pair that too with, with more open society recognition of like hard things people go through, like whether it's injustices in the justice system, whether it's the Me Too stuff, I kind of feel like not only has this generation, you know, dealt with a lot, but there's also been more openness and recognition of it, so it's something that they can see and understand and talk about rather than something that is maybe there, but everyone's ignoring, you know? Mm -hmm. um, Albert, how do you I see that play in? I think you're right, Shoshana. I think, you know, one video clip, whether or not it indicates a factual uh, strain of facts or just a certain anecdote can go viral and everyone around the world can see it. So we have um, a generation of people that's very sort of aware of victimhood, marginalized groups, and in a way that's a good thing. That being said, Stephen, I would argue that the people with the most radical politics are the people from the most comfortable backgrounds, yeah. at least from my, uh, you know, my personal experience. It's upper middle class kids. All of them have advanced college degrees and they are the most, they want to burn down the system and yet they are products of the system. Yeah, we, we read about them all the time. Very privileged kids going to Ivy League schools. Um, they're like third generation students at these schools and they come in there with a, 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 an oppressed attitude and thinking that they they can't succeed because of X or Y factor. And you're like, you are at Harvard and your mommy and your grandma both also went to Harvard. Um, and it's just, it's a huge disconnect. And I, I think that's true. Like that is one reason why you're going to have like these activist 
sort of socialists among young cohorts, but they're never going to be authentically socialist, like as a cohort, because they're too wrapped up in the fruits of capitalism. <laughs> yeah. And also, like, the, I think it, it's it's one of the, the hard parts of our society, too. Like I was saying, with, like, more recognition for things, it's also the fact that people can be at all different points in, in life, in society, and, you know, economically, too, and still deal with hard things. So I think it's good that we're kind of understanding, hey, you can be here, but still deal with this. Yeah. And that's healthy. But it's just when you latch too much on to the bad part, I think that can be really bad for someone and that can just be bad for their soul, for their motivation. There's a lot to be said there. Um, and also for all different kinds of groups. Um, Albert, how do you see like that playing in? Maybe the complexity of society, maybe um, just people not matching their, um, you know, their lived experience with like, I hate to say lived experience. I just realized I said it, but um, I mean, social media will make fun of me. But um, <laughs> <laughs> when they're they, speaking when they your not? truth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but matching all that with, you know, you're a pollster, so you know this kind of stuff. What does the data tell you about, like, I guess our new complex-ish society? So I would say both the data on sort of the hidden tribes in American politics and my own anecdotal experience not living inside the Beltway but being in Philadelphia, which is what I would call a real city, a blue-collar town, is that the gap between what people are willing to say online what people say when there's a screenshot available versus what people are willing to say in private has never been larger. And to get to the bottom of our politics, we need to understand what people are thinking about and talking about in reality. And this sort of new censoriousness, Stephen, you mentioned, you know, we're all sort of opposed to what the Democratic Party has become. That's a common thread of, you know, we have a similar enemy on, on the uh, right, including, by the way, a new bedfellow of Glenn Greenwald, who you cited earlier, mm -hmm. and his critiques of the corporate media. Um, we have to try and figure out what is happening in reality for people and what's really going on above or below this sort of censorious regime of what you are allowed to say, think, do, how you can act. Albert, who are the Zoomers? Like, who is Gen Z? Where do those lines begin? And how do you view them as distinct? Because I think to, to kind of get to some of what we're talking about here, we got to kind of define terms a little bit and give them, give them uh, a little bit more texture. I think one thing that's pretty interesting, so we're all sort of late 20s, early 30s. I mean, I remember when my first computer was installed, when my dad got it, mm -hmm. and it was amazing. And I spent a lot of times on AIM in high school setting my little statuses to lyrics that I thought were cute. And But it was a, it was an accoutrement. It was a addition, a garnish to life. I think people who are under 25, Generation Z, the primary experience, lived experience, is social media and digital first. The way that people live their lives, especially with COVID, which has mm -hmm. exacerbated a lot of our worst and most toxic political trends, the Generation Z, the generation directly under myself, Shoshana, and you, are people who have lived their lives digital first. And I think that has profoundly impacted how people talk, what types of information they consume, how certain narratives that have been allowed to slip through shape how we view all of politics. Yeah, and there's, I remember reading this, this story in Business Insider on sort of profiling like who Gen Z was. And one of the, one of the comments was given um, by this girl, Katie Foster, and she was talking about how people her age, this is like lower 20s, late teens cohort, like they really do feel influenced by short form videos and quick blasts of information and basically like who is messaging the quickest uh, and in the, in the correct terms. And there's been this rise of like long form media. This, this show is kind of one of those things, like we're going to take our time and let things breathe. But there's also this other side of it, which is that kids are on TikTok getting like their, their really quick bursts of information and whoever's best at communicating in a rapid form is changing the minds of young people, supposedly. That's what they tell us. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a good point, but I, it's not all that new. I mean, like Vine a few years ago was a big thing. It's kind of weird that that like <laughs> went out. Yeah. Vine. And I was very good at it. I will say I was very good at Vine. I bet, I bet you were. <laughs> but, um, but TikTok is kind of, I mean, it's different, but it's yeah. kind of going that way. And I know there have been studies too that show that like people are consuming faster media. Even older people like want like faster, smaller bites. Um, I, I guess that's also like the age old thing because I don't want to be like all conceit of the present here that yeah. like, oh, our current moment is so different. But I feel like that's just, you know, shorter attention spans have been a thing. I think it's kind of something that like 
plays all together. Um, Albert, have you seen any of that in your work? Do you think it's maybe due to something else? I think it's a really complicated political question that we face is how to be thoughtful while still being punchy, how to break through the noise without sort of flattening all narratives into us versus them. Um, you're a disgrace or you're fired or, you know, we're with you, we defend you. <laughs> um, it's really interesting. But then again, we see this desire, this sort of, this is why podcasts, this is why Joe Rogan is so popular, this sort of back to basics you know, effort to really talk and think and discuss things a little bit more in depth. I think that's a basic human hunger that's never going to change. And Shoshana, you're right. I mean, people don't change. We're living in different circumstances, but we are not hyper-evolving before our eyes. We still have the same desire for connection, for thought, um, for family, and for freedom. And I think that that's something that politics Politicians, leaders, nonprofit leaders on all sides need to understand it. You know, whether or not we're going with the palace intrigue, the media briefing of the Trump White House, did you vote for impeachment or not? What did Jen Psaki say? <laughs> Most people are not living and breathing by this stuff. And there are some basic fundamentals if we want to restore trust in institutions and build up a new right to see, you know, what, are, what do people desire and how do, how do we deliver that? Yeah, well, speaking of building up the, a new right, a lot of the articles that I remember seeing uh, five, ten years ago about how millennials could still be conservative. Like It's like the same writers just took those articles, ripped out the word millennial, put in Zoomers or Gen Z, and are now talking about Gen Z possibly being a conservative generation. And there are you are subtweeting me right now? A, a little <laughs> bit. I've seen your work. And, you know, just color, color me skeptical. I, there, I, I understand there are a couple of specific issues, and I, I want to hear from you on what those are, where they are notably, they have more conservative instincts yeah. than previous generations. But that is in the context of still being incredibly progressive on most things. So what is it that Zoomers believe strongly, Al? I think there's an anti-hierarchical um, standpoint and an anti-establishment standpoint that is fairly hegemonic at this point among the young um, young people. Among hate Zoomers. The man? <laughs> yeah, I guess we always have, but there's a sort of anti-corporatism. There's an anti-establishment yeah. vibe. Even I mean, they don't like the Democratic Party either. That's so true. So there yeah. is a "don't yeah. tread on me" vibe, and yet there's also a collectivism and a really a Soviet or Maoist vibe of this sort of arm-in-arm -arm locked struggle, at least externally. So that's going to be a real challenge for any free-thinking person, certainly on the right. That is a frightening way to describe it, but I have trouble saying that that's not true. The arm-in-arm <laughs> -arm sort of Maoist approach to politics, like it's just... But then again, we've we've seen that in our own past before, and we feel good about that in American yeah. politics when people do that. Well, one thing I'll add to, and I'm going to disagree with you, Steve, a little bit. Like, I think, I kind of think every group is gettable for each party, each view, that it really comes down to persuasion. And like, one of the things that I've done in the past is a lot of work understanding why Republicans lose in cities. And like, boiling all the like nerdiness down, mm -hmm. all it comes down to is that Republicans don't show up in cities, they don't show they care, and they don't come back with solutions. And liberals often do the same thing in rural areas. There's tons of work around this. Matt Lewis, who you mentioned earlier, you yeah. know, he's into this stuff too. But I kind of think everyone's gettable. But um, Albert, do the polls say I'm right? I mean, I love to be right, so please say yes, but am I right? There's somebody in my ear saying you're right, so you're right. <laughs> um, there's really some, I mean, I beat my drum all the time. I've consulted for the Philadelphia Republican Party. I do diversity outreach on the right from the LGBT angle, um, from being a religious minority as well. And I, we're building a program in Pennsylvania to train the next generation of diverse leaders through Broad and Liberty, which is the media site I run. Um, the really interesting thing, as far as talking about politics and reality and where the opportunity is, you see in enormous, just reported yesterday by NBC, um, blue-collar shifts towards the Republican Party, including among Hispanics and Black Americans, among blue-collar Hispanics and Blacks. And in Philadelphia, the wards that flipped most to Trump from 2016 to 2020 were the Hispanic sections of North Philadelphia. There is an enormous opportunity for the American right. It's not among woke progressive college graduates. It's not among, you know, hate has no home here, 35-year-old moms in the suburbs. <laughs> it's among working people of color who comprise an enormous leg of the Democratic constituency and yet have no voice in the party whatsoever because 
because the Democratic Party is steered by an elite cadre of woke, online, mostly white, progressive college graduates. They have forgotten their base. And I believe the Republican Party more than ever has an enormous opportunity. There are enormous gettable groups. Just look at people without college degrees and then juxtapose that with Biden's giveaway to college graduates who have student loan debt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, with the, with the young people um, who are definitely... I think they just by default identify with the Democratic coalition because of of the identity politics stuff, because of sort of the, I don't know, the more touchy-feely aspects of the party. It does seem to me, though, that like that barrier is what is always going to keep the Zoomers and whatever generation comes after them from the Republican coalition until the Republican Party learns to speak to more people at the national level. Because Shoshana, you mentioned cities. Like, I think that there is always a chance for city on policy, particularly like with making the cities of the future, zoning reform, uh, schools, and this entire nightmare during COVID and Republicans being the party of opening the schools again. This is an opportunity, but it will never happen as long as at the national level, the tone is so dour because it all trickles down from there. Yeah, and I'll add in a couple of points because you nailed on a bunch of things, honestly. I don't think I'll be able to get to all Ding. of them. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, one of the things is just, I think both parties are too very online. They like live by like the fire online and that's not what regular people care about. Regular people have like lives and care about the things that affect them. With cities, we have so many policies on the right, like all those, plus like we said before, licensing reform and Uber, like those are things that relate to cities and really close. And justice reform, there's real deep stuff we can do there that the right thankfully has embraced. And I'm glad it's embraced it because I, I mean, I agree with it. So I'm glad they have. But I think that there's just so much opportunity. And I think I mean, both parties tend to squander opportunity, like, constantly, in my view, um, left and right. But um, I don't know. I guess one thing that I'm curious about, too, is how much was the shift in, um, in, in Philly and in the parts that you're talking about, Albert? Like, how big was the shift you saw? Because, um, you know, just for example, years ago, uh, I remember seeing lots of articles about Chris Christie in his governor's race. And it was stuff that, like, uh, people were saying, hey, no Republican has walked the streets and come talk to us like this before. And those areas shifted red. Like, usually red mm-hmm. blue maps are a population density map, like, no more. But it didn't look like that in New Jersey. And I don't agree with Christie on lots of stuff, but that was really interesting. Were you seeing that same kind of thing there and that same opportunity there? Absolutely. I mean, people who are living in cities outside of the sort of Tony elite progressive neighborhoods are living the reality of democratic rule, are living the reality of what it means to literally defund the police and have them pull back. Philadelphia, the murder rate is up 40% this year, year to date, over record numbers in 2020. That's not just an abstract you know, number. That's real people who are dying. And you can tweet Black Lives Matter as many times as you want. But if you're not going to look at that statistic, I don't have any respect for you. And a lot of people are experiencing that enormous spike in homicide. So if you look at where Hispanic voters swung 20, 30 points towards Trump from 2016 to 2020, it's Mm -hmm. not just people who are fleeing socialism. It's people who own bodegas, who are working people, who are experiencing crime and disorder seeping into their neighborhoods. And that's something, these people are the next GOP grassroots base. And like you mentioned earlier, Shoshana, we have these perennial conversations on the right about engagement or about people voting against their own interests. We only come in after the fact. If we want to win as an American conservative coalition, and by the way, unite the Trump wings and the establishment wings and the reformicons in the Republican Party, we need to do much more diversity outreach. We need to train diverse stakeholders and messengers, and we need to respectfully engage with people in cities, in working class suburbs who will be our next generation of voters. Yeah, I can't echo that enough. I love all of that. Um, one thing I'll note, too, just a shout out to Oklahoma City's mayor, David Holt. I think he's a really good model for a lot of this. I think there's a couple of Republican mayors throughout the country where you see that they're they're like governing. They're doing their jobs. They're like focusing on people's lives and making their communities better. They're not like out for the retweets. They're not mm-hmm. out to be like the next, you know, whatever channel contributor. They're there to do their jobs. And we need more of that on in both parties, I think. And And let me say, let me jump in if you don't mind. Um, You know, we're not necessarily plugged into any Republican candidates. Here's a question about 2020. Did Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue 
have significant black outreach on school choice in Atlanta, regardless of what happened with impeachment and the election being stolen? Did they do what Ron DeSantis did to win his governor's race in 2018? Is Ron Johnson planning on spending time in Milwaukee in 2022 to win re-election? These are questions GOP strategists need to ask themselves. If they're not asking these questions and they're relying on the, the old base and trying to win back the suburbs, we're not going to win. And this is this all goes back to the demographics is destiny sort of argument that, again, we saw playing out um, in 2012 when Mitt Romney went down and there was the whole GOP autopsy. And kind of some of the conversation we're having today is kind of, again, like another autopsy of what went right and what went wrong in 2016 for Republicans. Um, but, you know, at the same time, like we want to see a different party. And it does seem to me that the old base of the Republican Party is holding on for dear life to this party and that they are not going to let go. And we're just going to keep talking about how demographics, whether it be young people or whether it be immigration, are going to change the party. But the downward trajectory of people in the Republican Party is happening quickly. Tons of people pulled out of the, of the Republican Party, particularly after the January 6th incident in Washington, D.C. Like, the party is not healthy and it is driving people away. And if our, our comeback to that is, well, immigrants coming to this country are going to want to be part of the Republican Party because they're the party of, you know, prosperity and security. I don't know if that's going to pan out. You got to actually like be appealing to people who are already here, young people, starting families. Um, but they're driving away all the young people generation over generation with their politics, whether it be their tone or whether it be the way they talk about climate. That's at the top of the, the, the Gen Z list, like every time. Like, is that, isn't that right that climate is the number one thing, maybe next to fairness and equity as a value for Gen Z? Certainly right. I've, I've often said the Republican Party falls somewhere in between the party of no and the party of get off my lawn. We need to spend a lot less time censuring, you know, the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Trump and a lot more time figuring out what intelligent market-based solutions to preserve and conserve our environment, to lower the cost of health care and increase access to intelligently respond to the flood of illegal immigrants across the border and propose those policies. If we are, you know, responding to CNN every time they say, what do you think about impeachment and Trump? We're playing by the old playbook. We need to be offering solutions that meet people where they are in their lives. And if I was the, you know, grand uh, despot of the Republican Party, I would be targeting everybody under 35 without a college degree with specific messages on how the party the Republican Party is a party of growth and opportunity, and the Democratic Party is the party of woke tribalism, dogmas, and handouts to the already comfortable. But they also chose to be the party of making your goods at Walmart more expensive just to make a point. And like, that's, yeah. that's not exactly appealing. Yeah, that stuff worries me. I'm just not on board with that stuff at all. But uh, Albert, one thing too, um, you do spend quite a bit of time on my lawn. Um, so I think it's fair that I should want you to get off. So I just wanted to say that. But yeah, um, uh, going back to lawn care and then Walmart. Yeah, I, I just worry about that when it becomes resentment, not policy, when mm -hmm. it's just like, you know, mess with them. And it, it's even if you want to do that, a lot of these policies hurt the, the little guy the most. Like, that's why I care about regulatory reform, not because it's like regulatory reform, but because it has real impacts on like little people. Like when you regulate something, the big guys can usually handle yeah. it a lot better than the little guys. So it, those are policy areas I tend to focus on. That said, like a lot of people tend to embrace that. And that worries me. Like, I mean, you know, I, I'm not saying I'm like the genius political mind or anything like you that. Are. I mean, For I sure. am. You're a senator. I, I just didn't want to say it. But um, but yeah, that that stuff worries me. Like, Albert, have you seen that kind of stuff in your work like that, like anti-corporatism, anti-business kind of stuff come up? Well, yeah, right. I think the an interesting question to prompt everybody here with is how do you respond and acknowledge to people? people's grievances and anger at what they feel is an establishment that has debased itself, lied to them, told them how to live but not acted how they preach. And how do you understand and empathize with people who feel that way without also um, jettisoning all values and just throwing punches to throw punches? And I don't know that there's a specific answer to that, but I like the framing of that question because I don't think the answer is shut up, listen to the experts, and we're in charge, you're fine, and uh, dismissing people's grievances. I think people are legitimately mm -hmm. 
angry at what their kids are learning, how they're being told to act and think. Um, and I think the Republican Party and the conservative movement needs to meet those people where they are. And part of the healing process that will bring, let's say, the Trumpites and the um, right-wing reactionaries back in is start first with listening and understanding. Yeah, and that's like what we were saying before, that just a lot of the stuff isn't listening. It's dismissive. And I know I can be rude right. on Twitter sometimes, and I can be dismissive, and I'm like, go to hell, like, you don't know stuff. I, I think I think it's a platform that prioritizes these things to, sur- to survive, so it's okay. But it's okay. Um, that said, like, when, when you want to win people over to your side, like, that's when I go back, like, my Arthur Brooks heart and stuff. Like, I'm very big on, like, if we want to get people on our side, figure out what their issue is and figure out if you have a solution, if you have ideas. It's like I was saying with City, it's like with, um, you know, with, um, uh, you know, uh, rural areas for uh, for liberals, whatever it is, if you're not listening to people, like you're not trying, because like, then just people feel like, oh, they don't care about me. And and I understand that. Like, I mean, we've all had times when whether it's more personal or on a business level, people dismiss you and you're like, oh, well, so they don't give two craps what I think. I have a question for the table. And people, you know, why does Gen Z hate millennials so much? Like millennials, it's always been us versus the boomers, and Gen X kind of gets erased in that entire equation. I don't, I don't feel like there's anybody out there who's like, oh, Gen X ruined everything with grunge. But <laughs> there's like this really palpable sort of thing going on between Gen Z and millennials. What is that about in terms of the temperament, the values? Why? They hate our luxurious uh, side parts that really show off my hair and they hate our skinny jeans. Um, they can go to their middle parts, and hopefully they all have symmetrical faces. Harry Styles has done this now, right? With like bringing back bell bottoms or something like that. Why did we do that? <laughs> Why are we going back to that? Albert, help. <laughs> I have, honestly, I don't have a great answer to this, but I was just talking to my sister. There's a certain fashion aesthetic among this sort of like blocky, monochromatic, um, like big, like square type garbs and I cannot tell the difference between like a 24-year-old like ex-hipster Gen Z person and a modern Orthodox Jewish girl and I just that's all I have to say about that. I will say I'm actually a <laughs> uh, modern Orthodox but I don't dress like it. So, you know, you wouldn't know. Do you know what I mean? I know yes, I didn't I know what you, you mean. <laughs> I know I, what you mean. You know, but like the, the only je- thing missing is is a skirt with jeans on yes. it, and then I know the difference. Yeah, it's the jean skirt. It's like a very '90s vibe. I used to love it. I'm like, oh, long jean skirts and like elbow length like, like tops. Where's the nearest kosher restaurant? Yeah, there's not many in DC. Yet. I will I will pledge my allegiance to the Zoomers if they bring Jinkos back. And I, will, I will bring my Jinkos out of retirement with my fingerless gloves. Uh, out of the name, I will bring the name my Game Boy out of retirement and play Pokemon with them. I have been playing uh, quite a bit of Animal Crossing, let me tell you, as of late. I've never touched that game. You should. Never touch it. I don't understand the appeal or why I should spend time doing that. I created like a horror land. Like everything is just kind of like abysmal. Like I have like illegal stuff going on in the game. Just because it's cute. Are your people oppressed by occupational licensing? No, um, actually there are permit issues though. And when that kept coming up on one day on Animal Crossing, I'm like, I need to log off. This isn't good for me. Um, one, of my, one of my favorite libertarian writers, uh, Nolan Gray, did this piece. I think it was for his medium about uh, the zoning politics of, of Animal Crossing yeah. and the vision of deregulation as seen through that silly game. Oh my gosh, I need to check that out. Uh, I, I thought of doing something similar because there's a lot of like, Little fe- federal crimes you can do in uh, Animal Crossing. Like, federal crimes? Yeah. Like, Crime time? Within the Animal Crossing world. Like, unfortunately, <laughs> none of it translates outside, but within the game you can. So I, the, the one thing I just wanted to, to put here on the, the rift between millennials and, uh, and Gen Z is I do feel like there is an element, and in, in Albert, you spoke to this with the establishmentarian thing, right? Like Gen Z like really dislikes establishment politics. And I sort of quipped at that, like, oh, like all young people hate the man. But it comes down to, I think, millennials were still structuralists in how they approached politics, like working within the system. I was a work within the system person for the Republican Party. Didn't go very well over the past (laughs) 10 years. Like I believed in that theory. And I think millennials by and large do. Gen Z are very radical and and you've kind of tacked at them a little bit for, for some of the privilege they enjoy. And I think that's fine. But like, why is that? Are they an optimistic generation or are they nihilist? Because I have heard both things about them. 
I'm not sure they get that far as far as what happens after you're done deconstructing everything. And that is a prime question I have for the American left that nobody feels like asking. What happens in 20 years when you're done deconstructing everything? What are you going to rebuild? I would say that Gen Z, if you trace the academic roots, let's say, of post-structuralism and deconstructionism and see how it's sort of infiltrated not just the academy but corporate life, media life, I think Gen Z is growing up... um, in a sense, after that sort of idea of deconstruction and burn it all down has become hegemonic among um, cultural elites and younger people as far as the messages we're getting. So maybe there is something to that idea of um, establishmentarianisms versus people who just want to burn down the entire system. But I will note once again in that gap between what people say online and how people actually think, I am not quite sure, and I would be interested in researching this and I plan on researching this this year, what are these people really thinking in reality and what messages, what um, structures and policies and messages will bring people who are a little bit younger back right. to reality and, and in hope of rebuilding our institutions and not just burning it well, all Well, my down. understanding is that Gen Z is, is less like PC in terms of, of, of their views um, and that one of the cultural issues that they break from millennials on is the sensitivity issue. Like they have more established norms as a generation where millennials learned a lot of different sort of inclusivity items over the course of our our youth and then young professional years. Gen Z, it's the default. Very diverse generation, millennials were too, and just sort of a very inclusive ethic. But they also are much more humorous about what we used to think was funny, about differences and different sort of tribal uh, basics. Like, and I have always understood them to be more irreverent. And I think TikTok is like yeah, a big a part of that. Millennials are clutching their pearls all the time where Gen Z is like, oh, come on, just have a little fun. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think you see a lot of that there, too. Um, interestingly, too, I think as part of this and as part of like the, um, you know, the swing between establishmentism and, yeah. um, and you know, uh, uh, like burning everything down. Like I think one, th- one book that actually got me as a libertarian, like rethinking stuff was uh, Yuval Levin's recent book about, like, institutions. I I never got to be much of an institutionalist, but it kind of changed me. And maybe because it's, uh, you know, because in a lot of regards, things aren't formed by institutions as much and swung so much the other way. So between, like, you know, how irreverent they can be, between how, um, you know, kind of whatever they can be and and chill they can be, um, is that part of, like, their, uh, their lack of desire for the establishment? I wonder if that, you know, there's a line between irreverence and cynicism. And I wonder if what is described as irreverence goes over that line in, in a sort of um, posture of, of uh, I don't really care about anything and it's mm-hmm. all a ruse and a fraud anyway. That's what worries me because I don't think as a country we can kind of exist into perpetuity without shared national symbols and shared reverence. And one... Um, idea I'll cite is the conservative um, sort of reverence for the flag for shared national symbols like that. I think that the left is very identitarian and focused on the sort of hierarchies of groups and what the intersectionality doctrine, you know, which group has a little bit more power and how to um, put people against each other. And why I consider myself on the right is that I think at the very basics, we do have a common unity around sort of America, what the Constitution is, what we should be together, diverse as we are moving forward. And I just don't see that echoed on the left. Yeah, I think that that sort of choose your own adventure idea that you're describing there and wanting to shape their their futures and their destinies. There was this this study done by the Walton Family Foundation a couple of months ago, and they were looking at uh, Gen Z and millennials and their relationship to the American dream. And it, by and large, it found that like they're optimistic. They're, they're looking forward to the future. Um, Walton found that 67% of, of Zoomers were upbeat about the American dream, but it depended on whether or not they could define what it is first. It's not the, it's not the house and the picket fence and the golden retriever. It might be living in a van on the road for the next 10 years of their life doing the bohemian thing like so it all depended in their their description of this idea if they had self-determination to do it now i also kind of disbelieved this a little bit i was like i don't know this feels too like you know rainbows and roses but morning consult found the same thing in their studies on gen z and optimism but it all came down to uh they are less optimistic about the future particularly about COVID. 
but they believe they can change things in a way that millennials didn't. That's interesting. They, by and large, they believe they have the power to change the world. And maybe that's just, again, youth. That's just yeah. youth screaming. Like, that's always been there. But I, I do take it seriously. Like, and they think things are bad. And that autonomy, too. That, like, autonomy is just so good for the soul to believe that you have control over your, your life and, and, you know, power in the world and yeah. can change things. That and is if a millennial is a structuralist, they don't yeah. believe that they can change some things. That, like, the system is set and you can't do certain things within the system. Yeah. And, and that's why I think where the Gen Z, it's like, it's nihilism, but at the same time, it is something along the lines of, of, uh, of positive, you know, that they want to break certain things down. And let me tell you, the things that they want to break down, some of them are bad, but there are things that need to be to be smashed and rebuilt again. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you, you wonder once again whether it's, you know, we're free to exist here because none of this really matters, so let's just enjoy ourselves, or whether it's, uh, you know, let's join together and improve the world for all. Um, I'm not sure that they're flirting with that line, but you're right that that Kristen Soltis Anderson Walton research mm -hmm. uh, did did show that, and I think that again shows the gap between what you see on Twitter, which is a platform of cynicism and deconstruction of your opponents, of people's ideas, of arguments, flattening other people into just retweets and um, I like this, I hate that. Um, and what people think about in reality. So hopefully in reality, people are more optimistic about America and about our society. I find that to be true. Yeah. Shoshana, closing thought? Oh, I like the feels. I, I want that. I want the blend of institutionalism where we, you know, help shape each other come together and it's a community. Like, I, I'm, I'm almost becoming a communitarian. Which Me too. Is, yeah. I, that's where I am politically is communitarianism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I want to blend those together with yeah. the agency and with the autonomy. And I think when you have those together, that can be something really, really good. So I hope that we bring, you know, those generational gaps together for yeah. the field. Well, Albert, Shoshana, this has been a great conversation. I feel like I did learn a lot. And Al, thanks for joining us for this first episode of Right Now. It was an honor. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, we are never going to shy away from the tough topics on this show like millennials v. Zoomers, but we do like to try to wrap things up with positive trend lines about how the world is actually getting a little bit better. So first, there is an old myth about marriage that was popular, particularly in the 1990s when I was growing up, and it was that 50% of marriages end in divorce. And that's because divorce peaked in the 80s. Gives us great movies like Mrs. Doubtfire and Pierce Brosnan as the new stepdad. Get It was this moment in time where we had all these societal ills that were coming about from that wave of divorce. Now, 2020 continued a decades-long decline in the divorce rate. For every 1,000 marriages in the last year, only 14.9 ended in divorce. That's the lowest in 50 years. Several surveys have shown a majority of married people felt their marriages were strengthened during the pandemic. That's a great thing. Yeah, I guess so. I always thought it was higher. Like, I don't know. What do you make of it? Well, I, I think that there's an element of, like, codependency during the pandemic. Yeah. And you could say this... From, from like the bad side. You could say that like, well, people are trapped together, they're desperate, and they need to stick with people who they'd rather not be with for longer. And you could say that about the past year, and I, I think that in some cases that will always be true. But at the same time, this year has helped people, I think, realize things that are important, that your job is secondary, that some of the people who you hang out with when you go into the city for work, that those things are secondary. Your family is what matters. We're spending all this time with our spouses, our children, our loved ones, our roommates, and we're valuing relationships more. So I, I believe that there might have actually been rebound in the past year and a slowdown in divorce for good reasons. But then again, it was a longer trend. This trend line is yeah. not just the past year, it's the past 20 years. So yeah, we really need to move on from this advice about like, you know, be careful about it, 50% and in divorce. Things have been pretty good. I didn't know the rate was so low. I I, I thought it was I didn't 50. believe it. I had, I had to cross-check at multiple places to be like, is this really happening? And yeah. it is. And that's yeah. encouraging. What's uh, What's got you happy these days? Licensing reform. Oh, my. It always does. We've had a lot of good luck with it. It's been one of my small silver linings in the past year that a lot of people have recognized. Like, hey, when... Um, when you need doctors to work across yeah. state lines and they can't because of a license, when you need nurses to act unilaterally because they can't because their scope of practice, like what they're allowed to do without a doctor overseeing them is limited. People have realized we need to change this stuff. 
Um, but a couple of states, uh, Utah's governor, it's a new governor. Bringing in the Canadians, right? Oh my gosh, yeah. yes, bringing all the Canadians. Yes. Um, there, there's so many opportunities to allow foreign medical school grads to work, but uh, Utah's governor, his, his uh, first executive order was licensing reform. I wasn't expecting it first, but I was expecting it and having it happen so fast and having them go through that review, like it's going to help a lot of people. I know it's a dorky thing, but like, I want the help for people. It makes me happy. The dorky stuff has the most direct impact on people's yeah. lives. Not arguing on Twitter about Colin Kaepernick or whatever. We <laughs> what, can do that too. No, <laughs> whatever they want us to be obsessed with at any given day. It's stuff like that that makes a really big difference. So I hear you. Um, that gives us plenty of fodder for another time. We'll be back next week. So please drop in again. See you next time on Right Now.